Our text this morning comes from the Song of Songs, chapter 7. Today we'll conclude our study in the Song of Songs. Hear now God's holy word. This is the beloved speaking to the Shulamite, the man singing to the woman. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter! The curves of your thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a skillful workman. Your navel is a rounded goblet. It lacks no blended beverage. Your waist is a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes like the pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. And the hair of your head is like purple. A king is held captive by your tresses. How fair and how pleasant you are, O love, with your delights. This stature of yours is like a palm tree, and your breasts like its clusters. I said, I will go up to the palm tree. I will take hold of its branches. Let now your breasts be like clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and the roof of your mouth like the best wine. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise and give you thanks for your word, and we pray, especially now that you would give us your Holy Spirit to help us interpret and hear rightly what you have recorded for us in your word. Fill me with your spirit that I might articulate these things correctly. Deliver us from error. Deliver us from distraction. Father, speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In, the, in the musical comedy, My Fair Lady, Professor Henry Higgins is a language scholar who makes a wager with another linguist that he can turn a cockney flower girl into a proper lady. The subject of the wager is named Eliza Doolittle, who speaks with such impossibly thick uh, cockney accent that, that uh, Henry Higgins laments, why can't the English teach their children how to speak in that wonderful song, convincing Eliza Doolittle to come along with him, he proceeds to instruct her in that other famous song that I think we've all know, heard at some point, The Rain in Spain Falls Mainly in the Plain. In an effort, he, he's teaching her uh, with, with this effort to break up her accent and to break up her speech pattern and to improve her all around, not just her speech, but all of her, all of her manners. And so when he finally shapes her manners and language to where he thinks she needs to be, he uh, gets her an invitation to a fancy high society ball, and she just delights everybody around her. Everybody is so impressed with her charm and with her grace, and they all really enjoy her. Higgins is elated. He's won the bet. But then Eliza is offended that no one gives her credit for all the work that she's done. I mean, certainly he did some work, but she's really made this big transformation. And so she's angry. She packs up and leaves, prompting another song from Higgins, you know, like they do in musicals. Everything, everything is followed up with a song. And this song uh, he sings is, Why Can't a Woman Be More Like a Man? And, and here's a few lyrics from that. He says, Women are irrational. That's all there is to that. Their heads are full of cotton, hay, and rags. There's, they're nothing but exasperating, irritating, vacillating, calculating, agitating, maddening, and infuriating hags. Why can't a woman be more like a man? Men are so decent, such regular chaps, ready to help you through any mishaps, ready to buck you up whenever you're glum. Why can't a woman be a chum? 
Why is thinking something women never do? Why is logic never even tried? Straightening up their hair is all they ever do. Why don't they straighten up the mess that's inside? And uh, that's, we kind of groan at that. And we, that's not really funny. And if we were to laugh at it, it's not because it's true. It's because it's not true. And it's so out of proportion. This song calls us to laugh at Higgins and not and not with him because his perspective is so narrow and because men are not always such decent regular chaps. Men are often, men are exasperating, irritating, vacillating, calculating, agitating, maddening, and infuriating such that any woman could sing the very same song about men. He's not singing about what makes men and women different. You're actually uh, listing all the dreadful sins that make them the same. And, and ironically, uh, any uh, radical feminist ought, ought to make this their, their anthem because the progressive agenda has been for decades to flatten out the distinctions between men and women, to diminish everything that makes women, women, and to make them more like men, in fact. So if, if you want to hear a man sing with joy and praise about what makes a woman different, you, go, you don't go to My Fair Lady if you, if you want to hear a man sing what makes his beloved bride gloriously different from him, you go to the Song of Songs, which is a musical. It is an opera, though, though it does bear a few similarities to My Fair Lady. In fact, there are several stories throughout history which tell the same story, the story of a nobleman or a lord who selects a woman. And this woman is often headstrong or obstinate or unrefined. Um, and he carefully shapes her into a desirable, compliant, civilized bride. My Fair Lady is based on an earlier play called, uh, named Pygmalion, which itself is based on a Greek mythical figure of the same name. Shakespeare wrote The Taming of the Shrew, which fits in there somewhere. And I bet you could name others which fit into that mold. In the Song of Songs, remember, the lady, the Shulamite, which is Mrs. Solomon. Again, Shulamite is just the feminine form of Solomon. The Shulamite doesn't begin this opera with any social status or standing. No, no one thinks much of her when she arrives on the, on the stage. She works out under the sun. She's put to forced manual labor. It's through her courtship and her marriage to the shepherd king Solomon that she becomes desirable and everyone begins to recognize her beauty. Everyone understands what she is. But the moment of truth, the turning point of, of this song um, doesn't come with uh, Solomon singing, why isn't she more like a man? Um, after all, why would he want her to be more like a man? What would be the point of that? He rejoices in everything that makes her lovely. He exults in her as the bride. And then because of her exaltation as the bride, he is glorified as the bridegroom. There's this circle of glory that is, as she is exalted, he is exalted. As she is glorified, he is glorified. These exchanges of love and honor and glory are going on all throughout this great song. He doesn't sing then, why can't she be more like a man? He does take great joy in her exaltation, her coming to his side as Mrs. Solomon. And, and as we heard in the last couple of songs between the two of them, we see his outpouring of affection and adoration. And now we see it once again in this blazon or this wasif, this, this ancient form of poetry that lists the features of your dearest and compares the features to something else that's, that's lovely. We have one more at the beginning of chapter 7. 
as we've gone through this and we've heard their songs to each other, particularly noting his songs to, toward her, we've witnessed an increasing intimacy in these love poems. He begins with general statements about her loveliness, general statements about her desirability. But then after the wedding scene, he describes her breasts for the first time. And now as their union has deepened, now in chapter seven, he talks about her thighs, her navel, her belly, and of course her breasts once again. It's all very feminine and glorious and beautiful. He's, he's not simply describing a generic uh, abstract female form and saying, oh, how, how wonderful you know, this, this generic form of femininity is. But it's all focused on this woman. He takes pleasure in this specific woman. And when she sings about him, she's not making clinical observations about male anatomy, but she's singing about this man right here. It's all, it's all deeply personal. And with each cycle of songs, it becomes more and more uh, deeply personal, it, it becomes, the, the relationship is deepened. By the way, uh, over this study, I've made several references to the um, genre of, of romantic comedies and, and musical comedies that we're all familiar with. And, and one observation that I believe it's important to make is that as fun as these things are, and they are, and they are fun, the weakness of that storytelling vehicle is that uh, a romantic comedy shows all of the fun and all of the exciting stuff happening before the wedding. If there's even a wedding, it comes at the end and then, and then roll the credits, it's, it's over. But uh, so, so, the, so the adventure of the relationship is all the stuff that happens to bring the two lovers together and then it's done. But in reality, and especially in godly marriages, all the best stuff comes after the wedding. All the, all the stuff before the wedding was confusing, awkward, strange, you know, for most of us. Most of us didn't have these incredible, you know, love stories that are worthy of the, you know, of, 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 the, of the theater. That We just had kind of normal, you know, we kind of got along and we met their parents and they met our parents and we proposed and we got married and it was all just kind of normal. But all the good stuff, all the really, all the great adventure, the best stuff comes after the wedding. Uh, having babies and living through sickness and living through poverty and digging in couch cushions so you can have enough for a date at Taco Bell and all that stuff, building, <laughs> building a home and putting a life together. That's, that's the real stuff. That's the real adventure. And so it is here. It keeps getting better after the wedding. He takes liberties in describing her here that he didn't take before. He's growing in intimacy and adoration of his love for her. His description of her begins at her feet and moves up to her head. He starts with her feet in her sandals, and he moves up to her hair. In her previous description of him, she began at his head. She said, your head is like the finest gold. And then she moves down to his legs, a pillar, uh, his legs, which are like pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. So he describes her from toe to head. She describes him from head to toe. His description moves up and her description moves down. And this directional uh, uh, 
arc gives some context to the direction of their relationship. She has ascended to a position of authority with him and he has descended to her in the same way. We're always laying over this, the, the uh, allegorical reading of this love between Christ and his bride, the church. And so just as Jesus has descended to us, so we will ascend with him and, and to him and to his side. And that's the same direction that's happening here. And it's no, it's no accident. He describes her navel as a wine goblet and her belly as a heap of wheat, heap of wheat and a wine goblet. She's, she's bread and wine. She's nourishment and rest. We might think that's backwards. Maybe, maybe he should be the bread and wine. Again, if we're, if we're keeping this allegory intact and we're thinking in terms of, of him being the, the Lord Jesus and she being the church, maybe he should be the bread and wine. But remember, she didn't start out this way. She didn't start out as bread and wine. She began calling for the kisses of his mouth, for his love is better than wine. She didn't have the wine. He had the wine and she wants it. Uh, she calls him to bring her to his banqueting house. She doesn't have the bread. He's got the bread and she wants to go eat it with him. She asks for food and drink, which he has now given her. And now she becomes food and drink for him. Now she is the place where he gets his bread and his wine, such that he deeply desires the wine that his bride provides. We read in chapter seven, but listen to it again. In uh, verse seven, the stature of yours is like a palm tree and your breasts like its clusters. I said, I will go up to the palm tree. I will take hold of its branches. Let now your breasts be like clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples and the roof of your mouth like the best wine. And if we skip ahead a little bit to chapter eight, verse two, um, she's singing to him. She says, I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother. She who used to instruct me, I would cause you to drink of spice wine of the juice of the pomegranate. Um, she is the wine that he desires. She has the wine that he wants. At some point, it would be good to build a whole theology of wine from the scriptures. There's so much to be said about wine and John reading the gospel reading this morning. There, Jesus is on the cross being offered sour wine. Well, at the beginning of the Lord Jesus' ministry, he, his first miracle is bringing wine to a wedding. He ends his earthly ministry around a table with bread and wine. And then he's offered sour wine, the sour wine of suffering on the cross, but then with the prospect and the hope and the promise of drinking wine anew with his people in their kingdom. The whole, the whole ministry of Jesus is colored by this, this enjoyment of wine and this expectation for more wine. So there's so much more to be said, so much to say about the necessity of wine for festivity. Wine is necessary for worship, for rest. But here, it's, it's apparent that she has something, this wine that he desires. He longs for the communion and the peace that comes, this, this Sabbath that comes from the kind of relationship where lovers can drink wine together and enjoy each other's wine. This kind of desire cannot be fulfilled in himself, by himself. He desires her wine, which, which is all good. It's completely understandable if we're simply talking about two human lovers. Yes, we acknowledge. I think every man who is married would acknowledge, I am far better off with my wife than without her. She gives me all kinds of things that I can't have on my own. 
Um, she supplies these things for me. I, I need her. I'm dependent upon her in so many ways. And so uh, for the wife, for her husband, it's the same. But throughout this study, again, we're adding this allegorical layer that this song is also an expression of the love of the king for the land, but the love of Yahweh for Israel and the love of Christ for his church. And so uh, what do these expressions of of the king's need for his bride, what do these expressions of desire and longing, what does that do to our theology if we lay that over onto the Lord Jesus or over onto Yahweh? Because if Solomon stands in for Christ here, then it appears that God has desires. It it appears that God has needs and passions. And, And I just want to rehearse or review a couple of places in chapter four, verse nine, where he sings, you have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. He is overcome by love for her. In uh, verse five, which we read just a minute ago, um, chapter seven, uh, verse five, he says, your head crowns you like Mount Carmel and the hair of your head is like purple. The king is held captive by your tresses. He's held prisoner here, not, not simply fascinated by her, but imprisoned by her beauty, her desire for her, uh, his desire for her holds him captive. And remember last week we read, he can't even look her in the eye. He's so overwhelmed with her beauty. In chapter six, verse five, he says, turn your eyes away from me for they have, they have overcome me. Um, there are all these mutual uh, possession references, peeking at uh, uh, verse 10 of chapter 7, which we, we haven't gotten to yet, but she sings, I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. He has a real desire for his bride. He is captivated by her. He is overwhelmed, in a sense, by love and affection for her, which again, if we're just talking about a man and a woman, we say, we get it. Yeah, I understand that. But can we attribute all of this to God? And if we do, what does that do to our doctrine of God's sovereignty and specifically of his impassibility? That's a word that you'll find in theology textbooks and systematic theology. And God's, it speaks of God's impassibility. And I'll just read a little section from the Westminster Confession that talks about this. And I want you to think, is this consistent or inconsistent with what we're reading in Song of Solomon? Um, and, if, and if there's a supposed inconsistency, how do we iron it out? Um, the Westminster Confession reads, on God's nature and character, it, it, it reads this way, there is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. He's without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. And what the Westminster divines were expressing is that God is not controlled by exterior forces. If God could be controlled by something outside of himself, then he is no longer God. Whatever is controlling him is God. Um, And so we, however, we know this experience. We are controlled by by passions that seem to come outside of us. It, It seems like anger 
takes over. <clears throat> and, and, and in anger, we do things that we wouldn't normally do. Love feels like a force that, that takes us over. Love has a hold on me. Love, um, uh, love changes me and makes me do things. And, and I feel like I'm under the influence of love. But, but God doesn't do that. God doesn't experience passions from outside of himself that put him in a, a, a subjection to them. So nothing comes along and renders God passive and drives him along to do things he doesn't want to do. Uh, that's what the confession is saying. God is God. God is sovereign. He acts on his own and he is not overwhelmed by forces that are stronger than he is. But this doctrine does not say, and it doesn't require us to say, that God is emotionless. Uh, we refer to the work of our Lord Jesus Christ in the last week of his life. We refer to that as what? We call it his passion, right? Uh, we, we use these terms out of great love for his people. He dies for them. The king dies for his bride out of great love for her. So this, so this doctrine doesn't mean that God is emotionless. It does not mean that God is unresponsive to his creation. God is not a stoic. From the beginning, God is interactive with his world. He speaks to it. He takes great joy in it. He commands something. The earth responds in obedience. And then he says to the earth, well done. Now, he did it. He initiated it. And then he responds with pleasure to his own work and the glory and the beauty that flow out of his work. He is, he is pleased with the thing that comes out of uh, and through the process of the created thing. He takes great joy in it. And, and this, of course, to, to help us, this is why the doctrine of the Trinity is essential everywhere. And whenever you kind of run into a dead end or whenever you run into a knot, you think, okay, wait a minute. Let's think, let's think as a Trinitarian. God is not a lonely monad. He's, he's not a lonely Unitarian God who talks to himself, who is alone. Remember, each member of the Trinity delights in the work of the other, and especially at creation. God sends the Spirit. The Spirit uh, is the light. Uh, in Colossians 1, Jesus is the, the uh, extension, the creative extension of God's work. And so God is speaking, the Spirit is working, and the, the Son is working. And it's as if on the days of creation, each member of the Trinity are all saying to each other, watch this, and the rest say, oh, that's beautiful, that's glorious. That is so, I'm very well pleased by that. That's, that's good, well done. And the other one does something, and then they all say, well done, that's really good. So Christ's delight in his bride, his passion for his bride, is in the same vein. She really does have something that he wants. The church has something that he wants, something that he only receives from her. I've been bouncing back to Revelation, but that's the theme of Revelation, the exaltation of the bride, which is the, the exaltation of the bride is the glorification of the groom. In Revelation, Jesus fully enters into his kingship because the bride is with him. At the beginning of Revelation, Jesus is enthroned and glorified, but he more fully comes into his kingdom when his bride is prepared and joins with him, and she is his crown. He gets there with her. Uh, it's not the entirely, entirely the same without her. So he needs her in some sense. And, and again, here too, the Trinity helps us untie this knot because ultimately the delight of Christ in his bride is the delight of Christ in the work of the Trinity. The Father loved her, 
and called her. The Spirit sealed her and gifted her. The Spirit matured her. So when the Son enjoys his bride, he's enjoying the work of the Father and the Spirit. What he desires in her is the product of his own investment in her. What he desires in her is a reflection of his own glory in her. Just like in creation, just what he's doing on the days of creation, and just like in this song, she has the best wine because he gave it to her. And so his, his seeking the wine that she has is his enjoyment in the work that he initiated in her. Well, there's so much there to explore. And hopefully if you have any more questions or have any thoughts about it or any ideas that could help me uh, sort through that, um, we could get coffee or lunch and, and we could talk about the, those things. But um, it, it seems that these these passions that are expressed by the king to his bride are real. And, and we can say these are the kinds of, of passions that the Lord has for, uh, the Lord Jesus has for his bride. And uh, it requires a little bit of sorting out to say exactly what does that mean. But let's, let's keep rolling um, and go through. Uh, my goal is to get to the end of Song of Solomon today, and we'll do it quickly. Uh, at the end of um, verse 9, she begins to sing in response to his Wasif, his blazon of, of love. She says, the wine goes down smoothly for my beloved, moving gently the lips of sleepers. I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. Come, my beloved, let us go forth to the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine has budded, whether the grape blossoms are open and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give off a fragrance and at our gates are pleasant fruits, all manner, new and old, which I have laid up for you, my beloved." She doesn't respond to his overtures of romance with a prudish or a Gnostic stiff arm. She, he, he says, I need your wine. And she says, okay, I've got it right here for you. I've got it for you. Uh, she uh, is established and made confident uh, by his love for her. And yet she has this curious longing uh, that he be even more brother-like toward her. In verse 1, she sings, Oh, that you were like my brother who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I should find you outside, I would kiss you. I would not be despised. Um, I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother. See, she who used to instruct me, I would cause you to drink of spiced wine of the juice of the pomegranate. There, there's a puzzle there that I haven't quite figured out, and none of the commentators have very much help on that either. Um, what, what is she longing for in this bringing him to her mother's house into having this more brother-like relationship with him? Uh, she's happy to have this private love, and she wishes somehow that she could take it more public. Perhaps their passion is running so hot for each other that it would be an embarrassment at this point to bring him around to mama. Uh, maybe there's a good reason we go away for a while after a wedding. Yes, we have a honeymoon, but, but maybe even move to another state for a little while to establish your own family. But don't stay away too long because we need to see the grandbabies. So, so bring those back. But there's this, um, somehow she uh, longs to bring him around to her mother, but she can't. So she charges the chorus of maidens um, and uh, 
she says, his left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Uh, don't misunderstand her. She's enjoying the embrace and the closeness of, her, of their relationship. But she says again, let, let him rest here. Let him stay here until, uh, uh, until he's done sleeping, lest I wake up and find him gone again. Now, now someone shouts and sings about her glorious procession that is similar to his procession out of the wilderness. In verse 5, someone sings, a relative or someone sings, who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? I wakened you under the apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. There she who bore you brought you forth. Uh, She's had this rebirth into a new kind of glory. She now goes out and comes in with her Beloved, he doesn't process alone now. He processes with her leaning on him. She's leaning on his arm. She's depending upon him. He bears her up. And again, so it is for Christ and the church. Whoever we lean on is our God. Whose ever arm we take to lead us through the wilderness is our God. Lean on some arms and they won't be able to bear your weight. They can't hold you up. But the Shulamite is secure in leaning on the arm of her beloved. There's a dependence there that is not demeaning. It is, it is not a demeaning dependence. Here, their mutual dependence contributes to her glory and his glory. Now, now there is a kind of dependence that does demean. There is a kind of dependence that entraps and enslaves. There's a kind of false support that shames, but you'll never get that from leaning on your beloved, on your Lord Jesus. So she sings to him, don't ever let me go. As she, as she leans on him and processes with him, she sings to him in verse six, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are the flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. This is a list of bold requests and statements. She says, set me as a seal upon your heart. You all know that a seal is a stamp that you would press into hot wax. You would seal a letter. It was your signature in the ancient world. It was your mark. If you saw the seal of the king or a seal of a lord or a seal of a lady, you would know, oh yeah, this is official, this is official uh, documentation. This is official correspondence. A seal is a statement and a guarantee of your identity, as unique and as binding as your signature. So she says, make me your seal. You you keep your seal on a cord around your neck or it's bound to your arm. She says, make me like that. Make me your identity. Make me your marker. Make me your signature. I am your yes. I am your amen. Identify with me and I with you. We speak for each other. We stand in for each other. She wants to be that uh, closely identified with him. She says, for love is as strong as death. Death is an absolute. You can't negotiate with it. It doesn't give up anyone it's taken until Jesus defeats it. Um, but, but otherwise, it's an absolute. She says jealousy is as cruel as the grave. The grave doesn't give up who it claims. And so a loving jealousy is as tenacious as the grave. She says its flames are flames of fire. When uh, she says it's a most vehement flame, that, that's literally the flame of Yah. The flame of Yahweh seals covenants by lighting altars, by dancing on the heads of the apostles. The flame of Yahweh rains judgment uh, on idolaters. The, the, the flame of Yahweh demonstrates his jealousy in manifold ways for his covenant people and for his namesake. So to summarize all these statements here, uh, 
this, this love that she wants from him and she expects from him is a binding, sealing, covenant, fiery love. In other words, she says, you ain't getting rid of me. You, you ain't losing me. And I ain't turning you loose. Don't even try. That's how close we are together. Her brothers then speak up and sing, and they're condescendingly singing and speaking out of ignorance. Maybe they aren't caught up to all the maturation that their sister has gone through. In verse 8, they sing, We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister in the day where she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build upon her a battlement of silver. And if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. They're kind of late to the game. They're saying, oh, she's too young. She's too mature. She's not ready to make commitments like this. She's not ready for marriage. Who is this? Like the relative sings in verse five, who is this coming up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved? Who, who does she think she is? Who is she? If she's a wall, they say, so if she's secure defense against temptation, you know, if she's a good girl, we'll crown her with glory. We'll strengthen her. We'll crown her with further embattlements. If she's a door, if she's vulnerable to temptation, then we'll make a wall out of her. We're gonna, we're gonna wall her up. Uh, but she speaks for herself. This isn't, she, this isn't necessary. Verse 10, she says, I am a wall and my breasts like towers. Then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. Thanks, but no thanks to all your offers, brothers. I am a wall. I am not loose or licentious or lawless. Um, in the gospels, the Pharisees play the part of these brothers, don't they? Uh, the condescending older brothers who mistreat um, the, the bride, they uh, lob accusations against the bridegroom and the bride, claiming that maybe they're being licentious, maybe they're being lawless. And the Lord Jesus delivers his church out from under their rule. And they try to reassert their authority, but she is vindicated and he is vindicated, and then they aren't around anymore. So she closes the opera with this song of the vineyard, verse 11. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He leased the vineyard to keepers. Everyone was to bring for its fruit a thousand silver coins. My own vineyard is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand, and those who tend its fruit, two hundred. Their house is so fruitful that there are thousands of people who have to work in their vineyard. The vineyard is, is, is in demand for leasing out. People pay good money. People come and work in their vineyard. Uh, they, they pay silver coins for the fruit that their vineyard produces. Their house is a blessing to the world. And he calls on her while she's out tending the vines. It's as if he's standing on a parapet of the house and calling out to her. And he says, let me hear you one more time. He says in verse 13, he says, you who dwell in the gardens. You remember, she's always the vineyard, right? She's always the, the vineyard. Uh, you who dwell in the gardens, the companions, listen for your voice. Let me hear it. He calls out to her while she's in the vineyard. He says, let me hear your beautiful voice. And then uh, I want everybody to hear your sweet voice. And what does she sing? She sings the song that she began with in verse 14. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. And so she sings back to him, get over here. Come here to my, uh, to, to my place, my beloved. Come here, hurry up. I want you to be with me. And so even as they sing back and forth to each other from the garden to the wall, their love isn't growing stale or cold. They can't get enough of each other. And everybody on the whole property sees and hears and knows how much in love they are. Everyone exults in and rejoices in their love. She's working in the vineyard. And as we saw earlier, Again, and I've said this, she is the vineyard. She is the fruitful vine of Psalm 128. That's what Psalm 128 says, right? Your wife is a fruitful vine. She is the center of gravity for this whole song. Her desires, her needs, her trajectory from shame to glory is what this psalm is all about. Re repeatedly, we've seen Solomon describe his bride 
in geographic terms. Let's, let's remember a few of those quickly. She's the land. She's the kingdom. Uh, in, the, in the wasif we read today, she has presence. She has shape. Her neck is like an ivory tower. Her eyes are great pools. Her nose is a tower. Her head is crowned like a mountain. She has stature. He uses the word stature. She has stature like a palm tree. She tells her brothers, I am a wall. As we saw last week, she's formidable. She has this cosmic glory like the sun and moon and stars. She's like an army camp uh, streaming with banners. She possesses gravity. She has presence. She is fearful and she is awesome. And that is the picture of this woman uh, that we see in Song of Solomon. And to the uh, uh, exhortation or correction of uh, Henry Higgins, he can shut his mouth. You know, we, this, is the, this is this fearful, awesome, uh, formidable woman. It speaks to the way, this song speaks to the way that godly mothers and godly wives are a kind of center of gravity in their homes and for their families. Robert Capon, I know some of you have read some of his works, and he, he has this wonderfully weird, wacky little book uh, on marriage called Bed and Board, and I don't endorse all of it, but he's kind of like Chesterton and sometimes Lewis, who just says things in a way that only they can say them, and only they can get away with saying them that way. And Capon is like this. Uh, he, he talks about the force and the presence that women have in their home. And rather than just trying to summarize it, I just want to read just a couple of paragraphs from his book. Listen, listen closely. He says, to be a mother is to be the sacrament, the effective symbol of place. Mothers do not make homes, they are our home. In the simple sense that we begin our days by a long sojourn within the body of a woman in the extended sense that she remains our center of gravity through the years. She is the very diagram of belonging. She is the where in whose vicinity we are fed and watered and have our wounds bound up and our noses wiped. The mother is the geographical center of her family. Her role then is precisely to be there for her children. Not necessarily over there, but just there. Thereness itself, if you will, not necessarily in her place, but place itself to them. Not, not necessarily at home, but home itself. And then he addresses mothers. He says to mothers, he says, remember, you are a landmark. You are and remain the bodily link with our origin. You are the oldest thing in the world. Don't be in any hurry to forget any of your history. You are not only a link with something, You are the thing itself, and you are the sacrament, the instrument by which we learn to love the things that are. Your body is the first object any child of man ever wanted. And and this is so important here, what he says. This is so critical. Therefore, dispose yourself to be loved. Dispose yourself to be wanted, to be available. Be there for them with a vengeance. Be a gracious Bending woman, incline your ear, your heart, your hands to them. Be found warm and comfortable and disposed to affection. Be ready to be done by and to welcome their casual effusions with something better than preoccupation and indifference. And then he writes the most controversial thing he writes, but is gloriously weird and wonderful. He says, children love fat mothers. They like them because while any mother is a diagram of place, a picture of home, A fat one is a clearer diagram, a greater sacrament. She is more there. 
I can think of no better wish to all the slender swans of this present age than, pro- than to propose them a toast. And here's his toast. May your husbands find you as slim as they like. Your children should always remember you were fat. And uh, I can add nothing to that. And if you want to take up an argument, take it up with him. Um, but to encourage wives and mothers to embrace, in a, in a biblical sense, you know, fatness is a, it's a biblical word, right? It means richness and glory. Uh, and, and to encourage wives and mothers to embrace this bottle of, of feminine presence that we've seen in the Song of Songs. Proverbs is written by Solomon to his sons to commend them what kind of men they ought to be, to exhort them to be wise men and to direct them toward what kind of women they ought to seek. Don't go after lady folly, go after lady wisdom. Proverbs 31 is always preached at women. It's actually written to sons. It's not written to women, it's written to sons. This is the woman you're looking for, Solomon says. But but Song of Songs has this more feminine point of view. It has this more feminine emphasis. Ladies, this is the kind of woman you are to be. This beloved, this man is the kind of man you seek. And the womanly attributes of the Shulamite are grounded in her confidently receiving and giving adoration, this free exchange of delight in her beloved. He lifts her up and crowns her with glory, but she is magnified. She is glorified in her receptivity of his love. Just like Mary is blessed among women. Why? She receives, she receives Jesus, right? Um, Her only failure in the book is when she refuses to open up the door and receive him. She refuses to get up out of bed and receive him. Otherwise, she's the recipient of praise and adoration and attention and all kinds of good gifts. And she only grows throughout this song. She grows in her gravitational pull. She grows in her weight of glory because she loves passionately and importantly, she allows herself to be loved. And that blessing flows back out to the world and and all the world delights in the good things she provides. Nobody complains. Nobody complains that the Shulamite can't be more like a man. Everybody knows Higgins is a fool because we need her in all of her womanly glory. And then just as brides are our center of gravity in our homes, so is the bride of Christ the center of gravity for our world. Take everything we just said about women and say, yep, that's the church. She is our nourishment. She is where we are watered and fed. She's not a light thing. She's not a peripheral thing. The church of our Lord Jesus Christ is not to be discounted or dismissed. She is formidable. She is an army. And yet she's disregarded by the world. Nobody takes her seriously. Why? Well, because she's first disregarded by her children. Her children do not honor her. The church is not taken seriously by her children. She is marginalized. She is not first in their affections. She doesn't get the best of their time, resources, or energies. She gets the leftovers. No one thinks she's important. She's not important for salvation. I mean, that's just between me and Jesus, right? Me and Jesus, who calls his bride his body, and they're one. Oh, maybe, maybe it does have something to do with our deliverance. Uh, she's, she's not important for pleasing God, right? The church isn't important for pleasing God. God knows you have more important things to do. God knows you have higher priorities than the church. The word and sacraments are okay when you have time for them, right? But they're not essential for life, right? 
All of her duties and all of her authorities are stripped away and co-opted by the state or the family or other invented spheres of authority, leaving her with very little to do and very little to say and only kind of a ceremonial function, you know, kind of like the Queen of England. Yes, come out, nod and wave. Okay, go back to bed. We're happy you showed up, but go away. We're done with you. So if we want this uh, church, if we want the bride of Christ to have this center of gravity, to, to have this position of authority and substance and presence in the world, then you and I must be dead serious about reestablishing her, acknowledging her, affirming her, and affirming her place in the center of our lives, that she really deserves the center of all society. And we make this a reality by making our priority the rebuilding of the church. When she's established, our families thrive. When she's established, society thrives. When she suffers, everything dies. See, when you dedicate your life to building up the church, guess what? You're doing the thing that Jesus is doing. You're joining with Jesus in his project. You're making your favorite thing his favorite thing. You're, you're making the thing he desires the thing you desires. What does Jesus desire more than his bride? What does he want more than her building up and exaltation and glorification and sanctification in the world? What does he want more than that? She is the beautiful bride that Jesus desires and he is bringing her out of a place of rejection and spite and bringing her out of a place of servitude like the Shulamite was in and he places her beside him as his queen. How can you not be interested in that? See, that same relationship is what he does today. He calls from the parapet and he says, hey, what do you want? And we cry out and we sing back to him to be with you. Come be with us and dwell with us and commune with us. That's what, that's what we want. It's the same image that we have uh, in, in the church uh, today. So my hope and my prayer my earnest desire is always this. My prayer is that this congregation, this church, would grow to become that center of gravity, that lives would be pulled into her orbit. Part of this is why it's so important to have a real physical geographic center, a building, a base of operation, a center of worship and instruction and festivity and art and education and discipleship. That's a critical need to have a sense of place, a sense of presence, a sense of gravity, a center. But then, until then, or even beyond then, for the church to be our highest allegiance, the church to be our central primary community, that she have a formidable presence. She will not have a formidable presence in the city if she does not first have a formidable presence in your heart and in your family and on your schedule and in your checkbook. And that this description of the bride of Christ would become a tangible reality for this city and in the world. This gives us a vision of who she is. Now let's make it a reality because it's what Jesus wants. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this book that we've studied. We ask you to indeed make these things a reality. Exalt your people, awaken them from sleep, encourage them and inspire them and strengthen them by your Holy Spirit because this is what you want. We ask you to make it happen. Make it happen through us and uh, may we delight in her and, and, and spend our energies and loves and, and lives building her up all of our days. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.